We're in chapter 6 of the letter to the Romans, and we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized in, into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now this chapter is reflecting for us the development, the momentum of this letter. The epistle begins, you'll remember, with the plight of all men in sin. That's the status of everyone, everyone here tonight in God's sight. He sees everyone here as a sinner. Am I a sinner? Yes, you are a sinner. You have fallen short of the glory of God. And that's the standard, the canon by which God then measures every individual life. And all of us have come short of that. So it begins, and then Paul moves on, and he deals with how God then made provision for our redemption, our deliverance, our salvation, how he sent his Son to save all who have entrusted themselves into the the loving keeping of uh, this great shepherd and saviour, Jesus Christ. All of us are, who do that are declared righteous and are justified through what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now he's in the sixth chapter. He's moved away from the plight of man and God's grace in justification. And now he shows us that justification was just the first step, the first rung on the ladder, that uh, it's only the beginning And uh, uh, immediately, God then um, establishes a new work. God builds, as it were, a purification plant. And in one end, then there comes uh, limping, staggering, defiled, guilty sinners. And out of it, the other end then come changed, new men, sanctified men and women. We're washed and we're cleansed. He starts to change us. You know, the biblical word is sanctify. From sanctus, the Latin word, to be holy, to make holy and loving and Christ-like people. And the foundational way in which he does this, as we saw last week, the indispensable way, is by joining us to Jesus Christ, uniting us to his son. Like a jockey, man is joined to the back of a racehorse, and so he flies through the air on the stallion's back. And so with him and joined to him, he clears fences and brooks and covers a mile in less than three minutes. So every Christian then is joined to, united to Jesus Christ in his life and in his death and in his mighty power now at God's right hand. In him we mount up with wings as eagles. We run and are not weary. We walk and we are not faint. Not because uh, we have some supernatural strength, but we've been plugged in and joined to, grafted in to God the Son. We have his life and, and his energy enabling us to do things 
we need to do. We can do, Paul reminds the Philippians, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And the vivid phrase that Paul is using in the text before us tonight to describe our solidarity with Christ is that we have been baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized into his death, verse 3. So let's look at it. Let's uh, approach it through examining how baptism was practiced in the New Testament and what it teaches us. And the first point I want to make briefly is this, that uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, chose to be baptized. John the Baptist, you know, was the last of the prophets. He was Jehovah's messenger. He was going to prepare Israel, and he was going to awaken the land so the people in the various provinces then, Transjordan and, uh, and Galilee and uh, Jerusalem, would, would start again to take religion seriously. To take God seriously. And so he speaks to them. He speaks to them about the promise then that God had made that one day he would send his people the seed of the woman, the line of Abraham, the uh, son of David. And, and, and John preaches. You know, he says, he's actually close at hand. It's near, the kingdom of God. Because the king is near. And he's not going to baptize with water like I have. That's my limitation. I can only baptize with water. He can baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so one day then he's preaching and he's baptizing John the Baptist and suddenly something remarkable happens. John spots somebody he knows. He's related to him. It's Jesus, the carpenter's son from Nazareth. And he's baptizing in the Jordan because there's plenty of water there because hundreds of people are being baptized. And Jesus joins a line of people. The river's there and he, and he stands in, in line there. And uh, in front of him there's a repentant thief. And in front of the repentant thief then there's a, a converted, formerly avaricious tax collector who's mean and greedy. And behind Jesus then, there might have been a repentant drunkard. And behind the drunkard, there was an adulterer who had been convicted of his sin and Jesus was there in this line of people. And one by one, they went forward and they went forward and they went into the water and they, they went to John. Our Savior appeared no different from him. He didn't have a halo. I suppose the lines that sin leaves on the face of a sinner that marks him as having had a hard and a dissolute life. Ah, there were no marks like that on the visage of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was found in fashion as a man, but holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. That's how he was. And he joins 
He joins a line of wrongdoers. He identifies himself with a sinner's religion. He's standing with them, affirming by his actions, uh, not, not by his words, that he wholly supports John, who John is, what John is doing, his words that they all needed to repent and be baptized. And Jesus was, in fact, saying, you can put nothing. No leaf of Indian paper can separate me from John and the whole line of Old Testament prophets. That he is the last and noblest example of. I'm in total agreement with who John is and what John is doing and what he says to you. John says to you, you all need to repent and be baptized. I agree. So the sinless Jesus comes up to John, a flabbergasted John, in the water and overcomes his reluctance and is baptized by him in the River Jordan. And that's really where we first meet to baptism in the New Testament, the baptism of Jesus by John. And then, secondly, all Jesus' disciples were baptized we told in chapter 3 and verse 22 of John's Gospel, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, I presume that many of the 500 disciples whom he met in uh, Galilee uh, after his resurrection from the dead, that they had been baptized as professing disciples of our Lord. But then John wants to clarify that verse in John 3, and in John 4 and verse 2 he says, it was not John that baptized, but his disciples. I'm sorry, it was not Jesus that baptized, but his disciples. So you see the picture. Here's uh, a day in Galilee then in that wonderful awakening ministry where he went around the villages and preached and healed and helped men and women and counseled and prayed. And he's there. He's, he's preaching his heart out to a huge crowd of people. And many are, are deeply affected and they're repenting of their sins and they're being baptized. But not by Christ. And there is John in the water, and then there's Peter, and there's Andrew, and there's James there. And there's a line of, of people waiting to come to be baptized and standing on the bank and looking lovingly and kindly at that scene is our Savior, Jesus Christ, identifying, approving of what he hears and what he sees. They were being baptized into Christ. In, into being a follower of Christ, into identifying with all the great words and the lifestyle that Jesus so displayed. He had stood in solidarity with sinners as he went into the Jordan to be baptized by John, and now they were standing in solidarity with him, with his teaching, with his claim that he is the anointed one of God. So they were baptized in his name. They were identified with him. 
And so from that time onwards, every single new convert, without exception, who put his faith in Jesus Christ, was baptized. Baptism wasn't something chosen out of uh, sentimental reasons, selected because it was a, a nice tradition. Our Lord required it. When our Lord, at the end, before he ascended into heaven, gave to the gathering of the apostles then their commission, what they were to do now when he had gone into heaven. He told them, remember, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always. It's not going to be a farewell. I'll be with you in a different way, but I'll be with you until the end of the age. So, just about ten days after the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, fifty days after he died and rose again, the 3,000 new believers on the day of Pentecost were told to repent and be baptized. And that was the pattern for everything that followed in the book of Acts. The new believers in Samaria under Philip's ministry there were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Ethiopian eunuch, he was baptized. When the scales fell off Paul's eyes in that little home in the street called Straight, he got up and was baptized, Acts 9.18. And Peter ordered those in Cornelius' household that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 10.48. Lydia was baptized. Every believer in her household was baptized. Uh, the Philippian jailer, every believer in his household was baptized. Every single convert in the Acts of the Apostles was baptized without exception. And here in our text, Paul writes to the whole congregation in Rome. You see what he says? He says, all of us, all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus. All of us. Us. Me as well as you, he says to them. Thirdly, what being baptized into Christ's death means the figure to be baptized into someone means to be identified with him, to be joined to him. The apostle speaks elsewhere about being baptized into Moses. Moses gathered the people together. He led them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, and they all escaped because they were there in that company that went through the Red Sea. And then through the wilderness, he led them for 40 years they couldn't have survived. If they wanted to be sort of freeloaders or individuals, then they'd have been picked off by the tribes there that hated this million people that were coming and taking over Canaan. They could only survive by being baptized into the people of Moses, being joined to them for their power and protection and their triumph. When you were baptized then, when you become a Christian, one of the things you're saying is, I belong to Jesus Christ. You say that. And you announce it in your baptism. 
you've been initiated into the redeemed people of God, into the saving means of grace, into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of those who possess the Holy Spirit. That's a gospel church. You join with these pilgrims, and they're on their way to heaven. This is where I'm going. This world is not my home. I'm I'm going to a new heavens and a new earth, a new way, and you've immersed your life into the life of Christ and the life of, of his people. A preacher could say, when he's baptizing a Christian, baptism, he could say, is like a sermon without preaching a word. A person stands in the water, he's representing his union with Jesus hanging on the cross. When he's lowered into the water, he's picturing Jesus being buried in the tomb. When he's raised out of the water, he symbolizes Jesus rising from the dead. So when you see a person being baptized, that man or that woman is enacting a sermon. But they're not not saying anything. When you see... uh, A man who dearly loves his wife and cares for his wife and just nourishes and cherishes her. You are seeing a sermon, aren't you, of Christ loving the church and giving himself for the church. In baptism, we are pointing to the dying and rising of Jesus Christ, Paul says here. He's all my salvation. He's all my life. That's what we are saying. That's what Paul is saying in our text that we've been completely united to Jesus Christ in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And that's signified then in, in water baptism. Now, Paul has raised this question that if all our sins have been forgiven through Jesus Christ, shouldn't we continue to sin? Shouldn't we give God's, uh, God's glorious name Plenty of power and majesty by showing his forgiveness to us for the awful things that we do. Paul says, no, no. Because, you remember the the old fellow you used to be who didn't believe. The unregenerate man that you once were. The non-Christian. You you no longer exist. You don't speak like that. You don't behave like that. You don't live like that. You don't think like that. You're a new man. You're a new person. Because you're joined to Jesus Christ. Your old friends go searching for you. They don't find you in the pub any longer. You're gone from there. They can't find you. The godless person you used to be with your bad language and your drunkenness and so on. You're dead meat. You passed away. You joined Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection so that the old man is unfindable. You are now... A new man. Imagine you could be a time traveler. Okay? 
let your mind, your brain work like that for a minute. You're a time traveler and you can go back 2,000 years. And you're transported back to a Friday afternoon outside the walls of Jerusalem. And on a little mound there, there are some crosses that have been erected. Three men are being crucified. And you, you approach them, the horrific scene. And you look at them, you look at their faces. And the one in the middle seems strangely familiar. He reminds you or someone that you vaguely recognize. Who is, who is, who's that man in the middle? Could it be Jesus of Nazareth? You, you get closer. Who's that? You know who it is? No, it can't be. Yes, it is. You know it's, it's Jesus. But the face, the face is yours. You died on the cross with Jesus, in Jesus. You were buried in the tomb with him. You rose from the dead with him. You and Christ are one. My concern, you see, by using that story is to just awaken you for a moment because you are thinking now that Romans 6 is a theological transaction that what we are talking about took place in the realm of dogma and doctrine. And so it, it's a little wall you build up so that you can't see what Paul is saying here about your union with Jesus Christ. And I'm anxious to point out to you that this union didn't occur in the realm of religion. It occurred in the realm of reality. It was on the cross that you and Jesus were fused and welded together in the heat of Calvary. In a place where there were strong cryings and tears. When there was a shout of such a pathos, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's where you were. There was agony and bloody sweat and there was a desperate sucking in of breath in order to just expel it and keep alive. And there was mockery and there was gambling. and Calvary was shambles. There was a sledgehammer and there were nails and there was a sharp spear and it was thrust into his bloated stomach and out gushed a mixture of blood and, and water. There was pain there. And nakedness there. And by a sovereign imputation of God, you and Christ were joined together. You and God the Son. That made you one forever. Now consider Paul's question again. How can you who were crucified with Christ, in all that agonizing horror, how can you who died in him, struggling 
to keep alive in him on Golgotha. How can you think of going on sinning? To give abundance to grace, you say. The sinning that nailed him to the cross. If that was the price of your redemption, how then can you trifle with sin ever again? Your sin crucified him. You died when he died. And the only reason you live uh, tonight and have new life, and, uh, eternal life, the life of heaven in you, is uh, because of his life in you. So the Bible says these things. It teaches union with Christ. And I preach this truth from the Bible. But there's another way also in which God condescends to speak to you about the reality of your union with Christ, and that is by baptism. God condescends to speak to you about you and Christ being one in this unique way, not, not with words now. Not to your ears, but to your other senses, your sense of touch, wetness, and sight, and smell, by means of water and baptism. Just like he speaks to you in a piece of bread and a glass of wine at the Lord's Supper. In that way also, God is showing forth to you the dying Jesus Christ. In baptism and in the Lord's Supper, our focus is not on anything we do. We don't dress up in religious clothes in a special way and enact a celebration here with incense and bells ringing. It's not like that at all. Our focus isn't on the ceremony. Our focus is on the living Christ, the head of the ordinances, the institutor of the ordinances. In him you died to the dominion of sin over you, the dominion of unbelief over you, gone. No longer are you an unbeliever. In him you rose. In him you are nourished and fed and, and are growing and are changing. You're no longer under the condemnation of the law. You're in covenant with Christ. You're united to him. You're a beneficiary of everything that he's done. You've been baptized into his death. There were many great things that Jesus did. The greatest of all the things that Jesus did was when he became the Lamb of God. And loving us, he embraced our guilt and our condemnation and the loss of his father and the anathema of judgment that fell upon him because he died as our substitute. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. His death broke the power of sin over us that keeps us unbelieving and doubting and fussing with other things. And Paul emphasizes how radically the break 
of the dominion of sin is by using three phrases in the following verses. You see, he uses the word crucified, and he uses the word dead, and he uses the phrase done away with. Well, you couldn't find the juxtaposition of three words that better stress the the total discontinuity between your old unbelieving life and your new life in Christ. If you've been crucified, you're good and dead. If you have died, you're good and dead. If you've been done away with, you're good and dead. You've heard of the joker who says that death is nature's way of telling you to slow down. Well, death brings an emphatic end to the life that was. Your life as it was. Look at you. The foolish ways you spent Sundays. Your contempt for the things of God. Your coldness of heart. You never gave Jesus a thought. That was what you were. But you were not that any longer. That old way of life, that old man, is dead and gone. And the apostle is saying in this text, look, if you've been baptized and that baptism actually accurately reflects what the Holy Spirit has done in your life, if you've been baptized, then that baptism is saying to you, you died to sin. You died to the dominion of sin. You died to the power of sinful unbelief over you. Fourth thing I want to say to you is what being raised from the dead with Christ means. What does it mean? It's the positive side, you'll see that. It points to new resources that you have. That every Christian is now living a new life. Verse 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, new life, the life of eternity, life that never grows decrepit or sick or dies because it's always joined to the Christ who lives in the power of an endless life. We're dead to sin, yes, but we are, we are alive now. There's a new life that we have. So Paul is pointing to resurrection. The first thing that Paul does in response to the question, uh, why shouldn't we go on sinning then? If God has forgiven all our past and all our present and all our future sins, then we can treat sin just so easily. He says, well, let me tell you what happened to you. Well, let me remind you about it, that you were once dead and buried. And now, ah, you've been raised, you have new life. Not perfect life, not sinless life, but real life, real new life. All right, let me tell you a story then, a little illustration, um, contrasting what God does with us what to man in his weakness and his limitations, what man is able to do. There's a very talented young woman. Let's imagine her. She's a figment of my imagination. She graduated from medical school. She married. She has children. She's a practicing general physician. She's the most popular doctor in the group practice. In her town, she's a member of a Christian congregation. Then she has a serious accident. 
And she has to go on pain medication during the course of her recovery. But unfortunately, she becomes addicted to the medication. She begins to steal drugs from the hospital pharmacy that she has some access to and from her surgery. And then she begins to participate in other illegal activities. And finally then, this is all discovered. It comes to the knowledge of her colleagues and the powers that be. And suddenly, things are really terrible. Her marriage is breaking up. Her parenting is falling apart. She's facing judicial problems. She's called to appear in court. And then she meets a a kindly magistrate, and he says to her that he understands the mitigating circumstances there, the throbbing pain of this bad accident she had. I'm going to let you off the hook, he says. I'm not going to sentence you to any time in prison. I can't speak now of the medical association. I don't know whether they'll take your license from you. And I can't help you with your marriage, and I can't help you with your family. But what I want to do is this. I want you to go to rehab. I want you to deal with this drug problem. You know it has to be dealt with. He's very kind to her. He's a judge. He's been very good. He's saying, I'm going to spare you legal challenges here. You're not going to face the penalties for the laws that you've broken. But you've got... You've got a work to do, haven't you? As best you can, you've got to go to therapy. You've got to deal with these personal problems. You've got to address them in your life. And that's all the magistrate can do. That's all a man can do. He's being discerning and, and kind. He can't change her life. He can't deliver her. He can't repair the breach in her marriage. He can't solve the problems of motherhood for her. But he can try and help. He he does, oh, wonderfully kindly to her. Speaks to the other magistrates. He spares her the punishment that is due to her for her theft. Now that's the human contrast to what God does. When God sees us making a mess of our lives. That he gives us new life from heaven. Strong life. Renewed life. A life of hope and energy. And Paul is talking about what you'll be doing tomorrow morning. You'll be in school. You'll be at lectures. You'll be doing the washing. You'll be working tomorrow in in the home. There are tasks that you have to fulfill. And you've got to fulfill them as a son of God, as a believer, as someone joined to Jesus Christ. And many of you know the wonderful reality of doing things through the help that the Lord gives you that you couldn't get by you couldn't survive without that 
Paul is saying, when God starts to work on us, he doesn't just forgive us, and that's wonderful. All our sins, pardoned and healed. And he doesn't say to us, but then you're on your own. I know there are mitigating circumstances, but then it's up to you. I can only do what I can do in forgiving and not bringing a sentence to bear on you. That's not the picture at all. When you stand before God with your sins, God says, I've seen the file. There are no mitigating circumstances. You deserve a long sentence. You deserve to fry But because of my dear son and his love for you, because of the perfection of his life and his death on your behalf and his resurrection and his power now at God's right hand, I'm going to justify you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to wipe the slate clean and I'm not going to send you out on your own to work it out for yourself. What you need now is new life, new power, new energy. And I'm going to give that new life, that new resurrected life to you. And it will bring a real transformation, a total transformation on Monday mornings for the rest of your life. The believer has risen with Christ. And there's the negative past of what he used to be and uh, his old unregenerate life. uh, It's gone. Now he's a new man with new life. He's he's raised from the dead. Every Christian is. And these structures are going to take over your future. And this is not an obligation. Uh, uh, Paul isn't exhorting the... Christians in, uh, in Rome now rise with Christ. He's not speaking of any process that is going on. He's not saying that today we are rising with Christ, but he's saying that uh, we've received new life from him. What the believer was has ceased to be, and now there's, ah, there's transformed life, and that's the challenge. Paul speaks in our text, you see the phrase, that he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. So where is it in in you then? This new life, this resurrection life, this transfigured life. Uh, We're not asking yet what the content of this life is, but um, has this taken place? You've become a Christian, you say. You died with Christ and you rose with Christ. And the life that you now live, you live by the faith of the Son of God who loved you and and gave himself for you. Is there any difference then in point of behavior, in point of Christian experience, in, in, as yet, uh, broadly undefined, but I'm expecting some change, some newness of life. I'm looking for it. Is there glory? Is there majesty? Is there purity and power and elevatedness? If there is transformation, it's a transformation of these dimensions. It's comparable to the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ was dead, lying in the tomb, and now, now he lives. Now he's risen. Now he's walking a road with two of his disciples, and he's cooking a, a meal at the side of a lake, and he, he's going on up to Galilee, and on a mountain there he's uh, meeting them. Is there anything I'm saying in, in your existence, not in relation to your feelings, not in relation to gifts you may have, but in point of Christian conduct, in point of Christian love, of Christian patience, of Christian gentleness and goodness, of Christian purity, which could tell your roommates and your family members that you have been touched by the power that made the world that you have been touched by the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Is there transformation? Are our lives quite different from what our unregenerate lives were? Are our lives different from the mass, the 8,000 students who never go to the Christian Union? The boys and girls in your school, they've never been to church on a Sunday. Do you stick out? Are you salt in a putrefying world? Are you light in the darkness of this world? Is uh, this transformation such that it argues that the almightiness of the living God possesses you and is in your life? As you face the temptations of life, does the way that you emerge from them and overcome them? Does it suggest that you're doing it by the power of an omnipotent God? As you undergo uh, whatever lies this week or this year in the matter of testings and trials and suffering, do you have a courage? And do you have a patience that would argue that the Lord is holding you? The Lord is keeping you. He's there with you. He's upholding you day by day. That he has made over to you all the resources of his power. And as you face the obligation of your Christian position, as you ask God, show me your will now. What's your will for this week for me? And then um, I'll do it. Because that's what I want in life. I want to do your will. And the way you do it, does that say, Almighty God is at work in that man's life, that woman's life. That uh, they're not doing these things by their own strength, but by the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's one of the great questions then that uh, the Christian church has to face these days. What is the bearing of the Christian? What is the bearing of Alfred Place, this congregation? Are we light in Aberystwyth? Are we salt in Aberystwyth? Are we shining in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation? And do our lives bear testimony? Not simply that we are sincere in what we believe and faithful in our, our religious duties but in the reality and nearness and the relevance of the power that we proclaim, we have, that the 
the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ is in us. He's in us tonight, now. Our own lives, are they new? Are they different? Are they transformed? Are they transfigured? Are they pure and noble? Are they patient? Are they courageous lives? Are our lives all these things according to that measure and that standard? Is it transformation according to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And if I have this transformation in such proportion, what's the source of it? What explains why I live as I live and act and speak as I act and speak? What's transformed me? And Paul says, joined to Jesus Christ, I am different. That's, that's what he says. And I am different according to the measure of God's omnipotence. How and why am I different? Well, because I'm with Jesus. I'm united to him. I'm engrafted into him. I'm bone of his bone. I'm flesh of his flesh. In me there is his presence. In me there is his spirit. In me is the power of my Savior. And this is not the privilege of an elite. This is not the privilege of an eminent believer or the person who's had a second blessing. Because there is no child of God. There is no man or woman born again. But that person is a man or a woman who's in this, this special status. Each one. This special standing. Almost physically. He's in union. He's joined to the living, risen Jesus Christ. And that's why our lives are new. Because we face the wiles of the devil with him. Because we face every temptation and trial in him. And we cry, I live. Yet not I. But Christ lives in me. We're told today that uh, there's a crisis of power in the Christian church. There's a lack of force and spiritual energy. And people think that uh, the great compensation would be an outpouring by the Spirit of God of splendid public apostolic gifts. But is there a crisis of power? Does any Christian lack potential? Does the church, even as she is today, suffer from an inadequacy or a poverty of resources? Where's, where's the church tonight? Where do the people of God stand tonight? They stand in Christ. They stand with Christ. They live and move and have their being in the power of Christ. It is not that there is no power. But there is a desperate failure to appreciate what God is offering to us. There's a desperate failure to appropriate that power. To thank God for it and, and use it and say, I can survive. I can honor and glorify my Savior. I, I can do all things through him. 
I'm able to do that. I can learn in whatsoever state I am to be content. I can do that. What we need is to realize the, the position of the ordinary Christian believer. That he or she is a, a person who's in the living Christ. Who's with him forever and ever. Whether we rest or whether we work, whether we go out or come in, whatever we do, we have this access and this reception of grace and strength from Jesus Christ. Not because our faith is great, but because our faith is real in a real loving Lord. The most backward believer, the youngest child in Christian experience, where does that little boy or that little girl stand tonight? The gates of hell want to destroy that little Christian boy. He's in Christ, a little boy. He's joined to Jesus Christ. We're in the Lord. And so this is, you see, Paul's strategy now as he writes this extraordinary letter. His emphasis is, I'm going to tell you in this letter how you should live. I'm going to say, I'm going to spell it out. When I come to chapter 12, I'm going to say things like, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my friends. Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, your enemy, give him something to drink. And in doing that, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul says, I'm going to say that. You wait a little bit and I'll come to that. But I want to tell you, first of all, what a believer is. I want you to grasp that. I want you to know that. That a believer is someone who is risen with Christ. And I expect you to live as risen men. And I expect you to live like a man who is in Christ and with Christ and joined to Jesus Christ in everything that he does. So the great thrust then of Paul's teaching on sanctification is is this. Be what you actually are. He says in verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin. It's not Of course, that they are physically dead yet, but they are to account themselves as as dead to its voluptuous temptations, to its its siren calls, touching their affections and their imaginations and drawing them and, and drawing them. They have to keep saying, I died to sin. They have to keep on reminding themselves that they are risen. With Christ, I'm not sure that we put our humility in the wrong place. We're not ashamed of our status. 
We're not ashamed of our station, of our position. It's time to realize uh, with some real dignity of what it is then to walk with God through the world and to know the power of, a, of an indwelling Savior and having illimitable access to him night and day for the rest of our days. There's nothing wrong with our power if we would reckon ourselves to, to, to be possessed with it. If we would work out what a wonderful thing God did when we died in Christ and rose with a living Christ. We are transformed people. We are transformed by the recreative power of Almighty God. We're transformed because we're in Christ. Well, are you living? Are you living according to this kind of teaching? Are you living new and elevated lives? Are you living powerfully? Are you living in Christ? Living by the resources, living out of the power of God who is our refuge. A redeemer is strong. It's not only love and, and pity and compassion. It's not only meekness that men need to live the Christian life. It's power. It's power to live this life, this new life. Finally, my brethren, be strong. And in the power of his might. The Lord expects me to live according to what he's done in me. What he's done for me. The resources that he's making over to me and offering to me. Day by day. Lord, bless your word to us now, we pray. Oh, help us to appropriate these resources. Help us to see our status, the wonderful privilege we have of being joined to Jesus Christ. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Help us to be overcome with the glory of that. And as thou didst raise him from the dead, by thy glory, oh, raise us from deadly living to new living, holy, loving, patient, self-controlled living day by day. Please do it, Lord. Oh, do it more and more as the years go by. We ask it for the Savior's sake. Amen.